Gunnar Stig, how are you? Welcome to the Candlelit Tales podcast. We tell Irish myths with music and have a chat about it in the next episode. My name is Sarika and I'm here with my brother Aaron Hegarty. And this week we are listening to Bress the Beautiful, told by Sarika. This podcast is brought to you thanks to our Patreon supporters. Thank you. Go to candlelittales.ie to find out more about us or follow us on any social media at Candlelit Tales. Now, Sarika. Tell us a story, will you? One morning, when Eru of the Tuatha was out walking along the shoreline in the far north of the world, she was looking out over the sea. And the sea on that day was an extraordinary sight. The sea is always an extraordinary sight, shifting and changing. It's beauty never staying the same. But on this day, the sea stopped shifting, stopped changing. It went as still and flat as a mirror. And as Eru watched that mirror of light, she saw on it a golden boat. And in the boat, a man with golden hair. The boat came closer and its sailor disembarked on the shore and approached her. Now Eru had been courted by the men of the Tua de Danon and the men of the Tua de Danon were known for being beautiful. But this man's beauty far surpassed the beauty of any man she'd ever met. His golden hair fell to his shoulders, his eyes bright and clear, and he wore gold, a gold cloak, gold on his feet, gold at his wrists. And he greeted her. He said, It's a fine day, isn't it? And she said, what sort of a fine day? And he said, I think it's a fine day for lovemaking. Don't you? And so she took the beautiful man in her arms and they made love on the shore. And when he was leaving, the beautiful man gave Eru two things. He gave her a ring from his finger and he told her never to give it or sell it except to the one that it would fit. And he told her his name, Elatha of the Fomorians. And they parted sweetly with a little bit of sorrow but much joy in the beautiful day they'd spent together. And he went the same way that he'd come, in his golden boat, on that water as still and flat as a mirror. Eru found she was with child, with child by Elatha of the Fomorians. And she bore the child, and she named him Bress or Ochi Bress. And her child grew 
quickly and strong. By the time he was seven years old, he had the growth of a normal boy of 14. And he grew, above all, beautiful. So extraordinarily beautiful that the two a day began to compare all beauty to him. If they saw a particularly beautiful thing, be it a man or a woman or a child or a bird or a piece of art, they would say, that is a breath. And breath grew ever taller, ever stronger, ever fairer. He studied battle and the arts of war. He became a champion of the Tua de Danan. And when they came back to their homeland, back to the island of destiny that their ancestors, the Nemedians, had left so long before, Bress was their champion. Bress fought for them. Bress was the one who was sent to speak with Shreng, the champion of the Fairbolg. And it was Bress, at the first battle of Moitura, who killed the king of the Firbolg, Ochi. After the first battle of Moitura, the Tuadidanan had lost their king. Nuada had been maimed in the fight. The Firbolg champion Shreng had cut his arm off and no one so maimed could be a king of the Tua de Danon. A king had to be perfect in his physical form. And so it fell to the Tua Day to choose a new king. And because their king was deficient only in his physical form, they looked about for one who was as physically perfect as they could find. And who was more perfect than Uchi Breath, the most beautiful man? Add to that, the Fomorians were in the north of this island they now had landed in, and they knew the Fomorians had been a problem for their ancestors, the Nemedians, and for the Firbolg. And Bress, it was known, was half Fomorian. And so Bress, it was hoped, would be a bridge between the two peoples and would heal any divide between them, bring them together and make them one people. And so Bress might have done. Had Bress had anything of a king in him. But Bress did not have the qualities of a king. He was used to his beauty and used to ease and used to having whatever he wished whenever he wanted. He was used to his skill and used to his grace and used to people putting him above themselves, putting themselves down in comparison to him. And so it seemed right to Bress that he should have the highest seat in the land, 
who else but he was entitled to it? And it seemed right to Bress that he should have the right to tell people what to do and where to go and how to dispose themselves, whether or not the work was suited to them. He turned his eye to the other champions of the two at Adanan. The Dagda, the great Dagda, with his club that could kill with one blow and heal with a caress from the other side, with his cauldron of plenty that no one left unsatisfied, with his harp that could play into the hearts of its listeners any emotion the Dagda wished, that played the seasons in their turn. And when Bress beheld this man, what Bress saw was that the Dagda wore a tunic that was rent and torn, too short for him, so that his flabby buttocks hung out the bottom of it. His belly was too big, his laugh was too loud. And so Bress decided to put the Dagda to a task that suited Bress, not a task that suited the Dagda. He told the Dagda to build him a fort. Now, of course, the Dagda could do this because the Dagda was the master of many crafts. He was the good god, not because he was morally good, but because he was good at everything he turned his hand to. And so the Dagda dug a fort for Bress. It was hard work, hard labour, difficult and precise, back-breaking and exacting. And in the evening, the Dagda was sent to lodge with an old, blind, idle man named Crittenbell, who always asked the Dagda for the three best bits of his ration. And the Dagda's rations from Bress were stingy. Much smaller than a man of his size and his appetite needed, especially when he was doing such hard physical work. And the Dagda, with lean rations to begin with, ended up giving away the three best bits of them. And Grittenbell defined a bit as being the size of a whole hog. So while the Dagda grew gaunt and hollow-eyed, the idle man fattened on his ration. Ogma, the great champion of the Tuatha he who had invented their writing. Wise and wonderful Ogma. Bress looked at him, The man who had made an alphabet based on trees and their branches silhouetted against the winter sky. And Bress thought, well, if he likes sticks so much, I have just the job for him. And so he made it Ogma's task to carry firewood for his household from Clue Bay the raw breath as the Dagda 
was digging the trenches and the defences. Every day Ogma would come, bearing a heavy load of firewood, dragged from the bay far, far in the west. And Ogma too was put on lean rations by Bress, so that his strength left him, so that when he waded into the waters of the bay to gather the firewood, a single wave could take away two-thirds of what he gathered. But he was given no rest, and he was given no ease, because Bress saw only what Bress needed, not what Ogma needed, nor what Ogma wanted. What did Bress the Beautiful care for him? Bress had his own important work to go about. Bress had his skills with the blade, and Bress was a champion, and now Bress was a king. And therefore, everything that Bress did was more important than anything anyone else was doing. And so everyone came second to the king. The great hope of making Bress the king was that he might make peace between the Tuatidanan and the Fomorians, the fearsome raiders from Tory Island. And sure enough, not long into his reign, an envoy came to Robresha, an envoy of the Fomorians. And Bress welcomed them, his father's people, though he had never been told his father's name. And he heard their plea and their proposal, which seemed to him a very good idea. You see, it was the duty of a king to set the taxes on the people. And Bress knew, he knew from being the champion of Nilitha, that if the taxes were too high, the people complained. And if the taxes were too low, nothing could be done. And the king's duty could not be fulfilled. And this was a delicate and exacting business, this setting and collecting of taxes and duties. And so, envoys arrived from three of the kings of the Fomorians, offering Bress a solution. They would impose the taxes. They would collect them. And they would give Bress his fair share. And Bress would not have to think about it. Would not have to worry about it. Would not have to consider it. He could go about doing what was important. What was important to Bress? Be that training at the blade, or hunting, or simply being at his ease, or walking about to be admired. Because after all, Bress was the king. And anything a king does is a deed of a king and a kingly deed. And so everything he did was important. Far more important than anything anyone else was doing in his kingdom. 
Bress gave it no more thought. But the taxes that the Fomorians levied on the Tuatha Dé Danann were punishing. It was said there was not a smoke of a fire in that time in this island that was not taxed. The Fomorians put taxes on everything. And the most brutal of their taxes was this. That every seven years, the Tuatidanen had to gather a third of their cattle, a third of their grain, a third of their children, and deliver them to the Fomorians in tribute. Murmurings against the reign of Bress arose. Indeed, they had been going on for some time. But nothing comes of grumbling. Nothing came of grumbling then. Muttered words are not rebellion. Change does not come from complaints. For who were the people complaining to but each other? Bress did not listen to them. Why would he? He was too important, and they were too lowly. And so they complained to one another, and agreed with each other that Bress was very unjust indeed, and somebody ought to do something. And so, relieved of the burden of what had been bothering them, they would go about their business for another little while before it became too much and they would turn and complain to one another again. And again. And again. And all the while Bress sat in raw Bressa, waited on hand and foot by the greatest geniuses and champions of his age. And so it went and so it might have went for a long time more. But the poet of the Tua de Danann came to visit Bress, the poet Crafton, who had recorded the fight with the Fairbolg at the Battle of Moitura. He was a great poet, respected and honoured wherever he went, given the best hospitality that anyone could afford. And of course, when he came to the house of a king, he expected the hospitality to be princely indeed. But Bress put no stock in poets. He remembered Crafton from the Battle of Moitura, and to Bress's mind the poet had stood idly by while he did the real work. The work of killing the Firbolg and driving them to the brink of their destruction. Kraftina had merely watched. And so Bress put him in his place. The place that Bress felt was suitable for an arrogant man who thought himself clever. A cold shack 
with no fire to warm him. And the meanest of rations. Plain water. A couple of oat cakes. Because, of course, to deny a poet hospitality would be a crime beyond breath. But he could show this man exactly what he thought of him by giving him exactly what he felt the poet deserved. Bress thought no more about Craftener. But Craftener thought a great deal about Bress. So shocked had he been by the king's meanness, by his lack of hospitality, that Craftener composed a poem that was more than a poem. It was a description and it was damnation. It was a verse and it was a curse. And it was the first satire. It told of Bress's stinginess, his meanness, how unfit he was to be a king. And it had a beat. And it had a rhythm. And it had a snap to the lines and a crackle to it so that it leapt from mind to mind catching on you'd catch yourself humming the tune of it long after you'd heard it and with the tune caught in your mind the words would come back to you again the words of how Bress was no king and it travelled around the land and it ignited something in the people. And in the years of Bress's reign, the healers of the Tuatadannan had been hard at work. Dian Kecht and his son Miak had outdone one another in restoring Nuada's arm and restoring him to full health and wholeness. And so when this satire ran around, and everyone lost their last shreds of their patience with Bress. The Tuatadannan had an alternative. They had Nuada back again. Nuada, their former king, Nuada, who had known the duty of a king and had performed it. And so Nuada and the nobles of the Tuatadannan went to Bress and told him that he had lost the kingship. Bress was shocked. Shocked and affronted. How dare they? Did they not understand that as the king his responsibilities were heavier his decisions more weighty his deeds more important these little petty things that they bothered him with they were beneath his notice he was a king and a visionary he set his sights on higher things and to be ousted over a poem. Bress asked them to guarantee him seven years, 
Seven Years of Peace. Anuada agreed to this, knowing Bress's ties with the Fomorians, fearing a terrible, destructive war if Bress should go back to them. Seven years would give Anuada time to prepare. And seven years was what Bress wanted for his own preparations. He went to his mother, Eru, and asked her for his father's name. And she took a gold ring from her finger, and when she put it on his, they saw that it fitted perfectly. And Bress laid all his woes on his mother's lap, the unfair treatment he had gotten from the two Danan. How they had deposed him and ousted him and replaced him with Nuitha. And Eru poured sympathy into her son's ear, her perfect, beautiful boy, her golden child who did no wrong in her eyes. And she told him the name of his father was Alatha, son of Delbeth. And he was a king of the Fomorians. And so Bress took a retinue and set out for Tory Island. There he met his father, but the meeting did not go as he expected. When he told Alatha what had happened, his father looked at him and said, why are you here? I'm here to gather an army to win back the kingship, Bress told him. But Alatha replied, You should not gain it by injustice if you could not keep it by justice. But there were other kings of the Fomorians. And Bress found many who were willing to hear his side of the story. And Bress was introduced to their champion, Balor of the Evil Eye. And Bress and some of the kings of the Fomorians settled in for seven years of planning before the day would come that they would march and take back the kingship and take back the land that Bress had lost. Thank you for listening. That was the story of Breast the Beautiful told by Surika, which sets up the next couple of stories as we continue the book of invasions and we talk about what happens to the Tuatha Dé Danann next. 
Not in our next episode. Our next episode will be a post-show chat, as always, about this episode and what's going to happen. In this cycle of stories, we'll have the Battle of Moitura and the the great hero Lula Fada coming onto the scene in the next episode. Stay tuned for all of that. Coming very soon. Like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. You'll get notified if you hit the bell icon when we're going live to do our live chats or have visitors visitors, or have our live shows as we do sometimes do as well. That helps as well. And also going to patreon.com forward slash candlelit tales helps massively. So do one off payments going through PayPal on our website, which you can also see much of the information about our storytelling courses up online if you wish to peruse. That's all from me. Stay tuned for more of the Invasion Cycle stories coming to you. And thanks very much for listening.